0: Now if you'd turn to John chapter 2, as we begin the second chapter here in John's gospel, and it begins with a miracle. I want to look at these first 11 verses, and we'll spend a little bit of time, and I've already been asked, and so I will tell you, are, are you going to teach on the Christian and alcohol, the Christian and drinking? And the answer is today, no, I am not but I am going to do that next week. (laughs) So if you want to know what the Bible has to say about Christians and drinking, Christians and alcohol, uh, I'm going to take a a brief respite from our chapter and verse line-by-line study, and, and I will cover that important subject next Sunday. This week, the miracle, the wedding at Cana. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word as we dig into it and read. Father, we thank you for your amazing, powerful Word, which can shape and transform us. It is alive, it's living. And so, God, we ask that your living Word would change us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 2 here in John's Gospel. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, remember, as you study these places, to us who have been there... It, it's this picture that's very easy to see. Cana is only about six miles down the, down the mountainside slope, down a small canyon from Nazareth. So this is an adjacent community to where Jesus and his mother Mary uh, lived. And so it's very close. These are likely, uh, almost assuredly, people that Jesus uh, knew growing up, certainly friends of the family with Mary, and, and now we find something that would have been very normal during that time as it is in our day and time, and that's a wedding. And so we're going to pick a few things out of this wedding uh, that Jesus has been invited to. And there the mother of Jesus was, and now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So it's obviously that Jesus has been invited to this wedding. It couldn't possibly be his own wedding. You don't invite, invite the groom to come to his own wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now I want you to notice something. And this is a fallacy that I actually was asked this question after first service. Notice Jesus does not, or Jesus is not instructed uh, by Mary what he's supposed to do. All Mary does is inform him that there's an issue. She doesn't say, hey son, you need to do this. This is not Mary exercising authority over Jesus, or being co-equal to Jesus. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus, simply having a friend whose wedding is, she's been invited to, that there's an actual need. She sees the need and speaks that need to Jesus. In other words, she's making it known to him. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? For my hour has not yet come. The phrase, my hour, is going to be developed throughout John's Gospel. It is developed through all of the Gospels, but very specifically in John's Gospel, this time of the hour of Jesus. And that hour is the hour that the work on the cross will be finished. It's what he's working towards. It's where he's going. It was his charge. It was his mission. He came to this earth to give his life a ransom for many. But that hour has not yet come. Matter of fact, he's at the beginning of his ministry. He's just been baptized in the Jordan River by John. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him. He's now beginning to do these things which will authenticate who he is. Let everyone know, in fact, that he is God. He's already been declared Logos. He's already been declared the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's already been declared as the light and the life. We've already seen that in chapter 1. He's been given all these names. It's one thing to call somebody something, it's another thing for them to live out that calling. Jesus is now going to live out that calling. He's going to make it very clear exactly who he is. One of the blessings of the gospel record is that the gospel authors did not all record the same event, the events the same way. You pick up on the reality of what Jesus is doing in a human sense. And he's going to give them a sign, a very small sign in some ways compared to what he will do as he travels to the region of Galilee, but he's going to begin to say, "Look, there's something very different about me." But he doesn't pull out his a miracle. By the time we get to chapter 11, we're going to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. That's a greater miracle than turning water into wine. But he's beginning to develop the thought, hey, you really need to think about who I am. I'm the son of man. The one that Daniel spoke about, I'm him. What does that mean to us? That means that God incarnate in human flesh has come to earth and he's here on a mission But his hour has not yet fully come. And he'll keep telling them this for the next two and a half years. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, uh, do it. She's not doing the miracle herself. She's not helping Jesus with the miracle. She's simply saying, I know my boy and you might want to listen to him. Now there were six water pots of stone. Now imagine for yourself that you're in a day and time where you can't go into your kitchen and turn on a tap and water is going to come out and especially water that's going to be cleaned. Uh, Nobody had water piped into their house except for the very, very wealthy like Herod at this time. uh, Undoubtedly had troughs of water, even sometimes some clay-lined pipe. Uh, Matter of fact, one of the reasons that the Romans died off in the city of Rome is they figured out that they could take clay pipe and they could dip it in molten lead, making lead-lined pipe, and then they would take molten lead and pour it over the seam. So every time you took a drink in some noble person's home, you were getting exactly what we now know causes brain damage, which is lead. But at this day and time, in the hills of Nazareth, this little region of northern Galilee... They held water pots, and they had successive water pots. They would take the water from the stream, and notice it says, as, the, matter of, as the, the manner of purification of the Jews, there were six of them. And so what they would do is they would successively take water from one, pour it into another, it would settle, the mud, the sediment would come out, and by the time you got the last water pot, that one was the pure one that you would drink out of. And so here, Jesus is entering into a normal, everyday piece of life and living. Each of them containing 20 or 30 gallons. Now, do some simple math, you'll realize this is quite a bit of water. These are large, tall jars. They were uh, very likely 18 inches or so in diameter, probably 3 to 5 feet tall. And they would hold 20 to 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, notice they're empty, fill them with water. So they went and got water and they filled them up to the brim. There's a little tiny creek that runs down through that particular canyon. They probably went to that creek, dipped the water out, and filled those water jars up. They filled them to the brim. Now I want you to notice something. It does not say that Jesus turned all the water that's in all the water pots into wine. One of the common fallacies, and we'll get to the three most common ones here in a moment, is that Jesus made 180 gallons of wine, which would be very, very, very excessive at a wedding feast. Would have kind of made Jesus into like the local liquor store. (laughs) Said fill the water pots with water. He didn't say fill it all up with wine. And he said, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. So we don't know whether they're drawing out wine or water. But we know what happens by the time it gets to the person who's going to drink it. And they took it, and when the master of feast had, uh, the feast had tasted the water, that it was made wine. So whether it happens from the glass that he's drinking out to his lips, or whether it happens from the pitcher to the glass, or whether the whole top of the thing is we don't know but we know this Jesus does something miraculous it's a miracle can I tell you you better believe in miracles if you're a Christian when Christians come to you I don't believe in miracles I say really are you saved that's a miracle the fact that you would even know Jesus is a miracle the fact that you're saved by grace through faith, that's a miracle. And a matter of fact, I would say to you, a whole bunch greater miracle cleaning up you than cleaning up some water and turning it into wine. Well, a lot of people, well, you know, it just couldn't have happened. Look, if God created the universe in six literal days, I, I'm pretty sure he can do the wine thing. Just saying. He tasted it was made into wine and did not know where it came from. (laughs) He's saying, what I saw was a guy dip a pot into a pitcher of water and bring it to me and by the time it got to me and I drank it, it's wine. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. Can I tell you that we who are in the body of Christ know things that other people don't know? When you know Jesus, you know stuff that the world doesn't know. You start watching the news without knowing Jesus, and you're like, I need to build a bomb shelter in my backyard. <laughs> but we know what's going on in our world because our Bible has told us what things are going to look like in the last days. And we know what the Bible says about we who, are know, who know him in the last days. And so, while I'm not really overly thrilled about a 30-year-old child having nuclear weapons, I also know that the Lord God in heaven has appointed me one time to die and then I'll see judgment, so I'm not going one second before God says so. See, I know stuff because I serve the Lord. The servants got to see something that everybody else didn't see because they were seeing with eyes of faith. They're seeing with eyes of faith. And without that faith, it's impossible to please God. And so they're kind of in on what's going on here. So the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out good wine. And when the guests have drunk well, then the inferior, but you've kept the good wine until now. It says, then this is the beginning of the signs this is the beginning of the Simeon, the things that Jesus would do that would point to something greater than what he did that were the signs that he was exactly who he said he claimed to be. Just the beginning that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, people take this passage of Scripture really in three uh, different ways that are, that are errant. And, and I think it's important to kind of look at it. And, and first is that they just simply outright reject any type of talk of miracles, which to me is ludicrous. When you're, when you're talking to Christians, it's like you, you don't believe in the miraculous, but you believe that somehow you're saved by grace and through faith. That's like the epitome of not being intellectually honest. If you believe you're saved by grace and through faith, then turning a little bit of water into wine shouldn't be a problem for you. So I think we can toss that one out. Then they'll always say, well, you know, it's just so much. It was 180 gallons. Yeah, it's 180 gallons. If you want to break it down into 12-ounce cans like you were going to go buy Budweiser at Bonds, it's 80 cases. It's a bunch, admittedly. But again, we don't know how much of it was turned into wine. We only know that as people drank it, to them it was wine. That's what we actually know from what is said. We aren't told that, that every bit of it. So it may have been some, it may have been most, it may have been all. We don't know. Was it just what was poured into someone's cup? We don't know. People say, well, you know, it wasn't, wasn't really wine at all. It was, Jesus was, was giving a joke here. He made Jesus juice out of it. Well, just tell everybody it's wine and then laugh about it. Ha, ha, this is wine. Makes no sense at all. Furthermore, by the time we get to chapter four, we're going to see that John himself records that what happens there as, as this nobleman's son uh, is, is healed, he, he runs to Jesus, he says, this is the second miracle that Jesus performed. So he's saying the first one was the wedding at Canaan. So it was not just water that kind of sort of looked like wine. It wasn't, they put food dye in it and said, well, yeah, well, we don't want anybody to be embarrassed, so tell everybody it's wine. And the third thing is it just drives me crazy because people believe that this was Jesus's wedding. Which is exactly, by the way, what the Mormon Church teaches—that he's marrying Mary and Martha right here, as a good polygamist would do. That's nuts! It doesn't. Since when does someone have to be invited to their own wedding, especially if you're getting married to two women? (laughs) Ah, you'd know about it, man. It's that simple. You wouldn't have to be invited. You wouldn't be inviting. It would have already been done. There'd been no mention of that. It wasn't Jesus's wedding. It was not as the Da Vinci Code speculates. Jesus was an invited guest to this wedding. That's why you see the mention of actually talking to the bridegroom. If it was Jesus, they would have just said, and Jesus said. Or, Or it was repeated to Jesus. He would have been named by name. So what's going on here? It's what you think. It's a miracle. Jesus is doing exactly what you would expect Jesus to do. And I want to show you three things as we wrap this up this morning. Jesus was an invited guest into the daily details of life. Can you say that Jesus is your invited guest into the daily details of your life? Is he welcome at your dinner table? Is he welcome in your workplace? Is he welcome in your leisure time? Is he welcomed around your television set? Is he welcomed into your bedroom? Is Jesus an invited guest in your life? Jesus wants to be an invited guest into every area and every aspect of your life. Yes, he wants to do the miraculous, but he will often do the miraculous in the mundane things of life. You you see him in that unexpected wage increase. You see him in that job that you didn't think you would get. Can I tell you, we, we don't see the types of things that people often associate with miracles. Look, your Toyota is not becoming a Mercedes while it's sitting in the parking lot right now. (laughs) You're not going to get home and your house has been expanded by 1,000 square feet. It's not happening. You're not going to actually have a yard. But God can heal your marriage on the way home. God can touch that sickness that's been nagging for weeks and months. Jesus wants to be an invited guest into every area of your life. And let me give you a little secret here. If you're having a wedding, you know somebody's having a wedding, you really want Jesus invited to your wedding. Because without Jesus, there is no wedding. You just have a civil contract if Jesus isn't there. You want Jesus invited to your wedding. But you got to invite him. You've got to ask him. Jesus wasn't well known by this time. He was an invited guest. Make sure you invite Jesus. The second thing. Though Jesus was clearly already announcing himself as God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Son of Man. He's Logos. He's He's Emmanuel. God with us. But he was still Mary's son. Jesus is relatable. He's not some far off distant God. He's still, though he in essence created Mary, though he's the creator God, He's still showing some respect for his mom. He's still saying, look, okay, mom, I, I see the need. Thanks for letting me know. Seems like maybe Jesus is being a little abrupt here, but he's, he's not. That's why he says, look, my time has not come yet. My hour is not yet come. I, I, I don't want to spill all the beans just yet, Mom. And here's why. Can you imagine if the very first miracle that Jesus did was raise a half a dozen people from the dead? He would have never made it to the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. There would have been thousands of people thronging him right here, right now. And so he does something fairly mundane, fairly simple, but still miraculous. He's piquing the interest of people. And so what happens with this group This small group, this group of guests that are at this wedding, they all go, yeah, I was at the wedding when he changed the water into wine. I wonder what he's going to do next. Where is he going to go? What's going to happen? And of course, we have the entirety of the story already in front of us. And so we know some of the things that he does, and it is going to include raising dead people to life. It's going to include, miraculously, taking a few loaves and a couple of fish and feeding 5,000 people. Had he done that here, everybody would have given up their daytime job. I'm just following Jesus. Free meals. It's like, wherever he goes, nobody goes hungry. You see, that's why I can tell you that those churches that teach a health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine are False. Because Jesus doesn't take care of every need, every time, all day, every day. We, we go through some struggles every once in a while. We go through some difficulties. It's because he wants to be invited into your life. He doesn't want to just buy you by giving you everything initially. He doesn't make an overwhelming case. You see, if people only believe because of miracles, then it's possible that they would never believe. Because maybe there isn't a miracle big enough for you but if the way that you believe is by faith. If what you're looking for is the grace of God and not a handout, if you're not looking for God to solve your problems, but to take care of your debt of sin, which is what the cross does, then you come to God by faith. Not because he did a miracle. Though what he does do is miraculous. And then finally, He shows himself to be what you would expect of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's, he's the perfect host. It wasn't a spectacular thing. It was a simple thing. It it wasn't something, there are probably some people who saw it and said, well, I think that was already wine. He was just being relational. He was being real. Can I tell you Jesus wants to be real to you? Yes, he's God. And yes, he's our Savior. He is our Lord. He's the master of our lives. But he wants to be real to you. He wants to host your life. And he wants to host mine. Beautiful picture of how the Lord works in each of our lives. He takes normal stone pots a little bit of water. He takes you and me and our families and this church and somehow does miraculous things with it. He knows how to host us. He knows what to do for each of us. He doesn't want us trusting in simple miracles. He's going to do some spectacular things. He's going to make sure everyone knows. And he will do what you need to know in order that your faith can be strengthened. But he will never do so much as to force you into having to believe because he's simply done miracles in your midst. He will always leave the decision to you. And so as you see this little tiny miracle, and again, we'll cover, we'll cover the alcohol side of it next week. You know, why would Jesus make an alcoholic beverage? You talk about getting some strange doctrine. There are some folks who take this one too. That's why I own a bar. I called it Jesus' Bar. We only serve the best first here. Now Jesus wants to be invited into everything in your life. He wants to be your Lord. He wants to be your Savior. He wants to be your friend. Make sure that you've invited him. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll pray? Maybe you came in today and you're you're carrying some kind of burden, some weight. Maybe there's something that you just need to dump in the lap of Jesus. Our prayer team and our prayer rooms available to you after service. I want to just invite you to go and have somebody pray for you in the prayer room. Let it go. Let God be real in your life. Let him join you in the simple things. Don't just come visit him here, please, in Jesus' name. Don't do it. Don't come hang out with Jesus at church. You make Jesus number one in everything that you do all day, every day. Father, thank you that we have that kind of relationship. Yes, you're God, and yes, you're holy. Yes, you are exalted in the heavens, and yes, you're worthy of our praise. But you also call us friend. You want to dwell with us. You want to walk with us. You want to talk with us. You want to be real with us and relational with us. And so God, help us to have that relationship as well. Help us to always leave you holy, but invite you into every area of life. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We ask that you would bless us. Watch over us, keep us. Thank you for being our friend. In Jesus' name, amen.